0: You know when we talk to people, there are some phrases that we say, whose meaning and and how that meaning is received depends totally on the way that we say it. Now, leave me an example of this. If you take a relatively innocuous question like "What are you doing?" Okay, those very simple four words. What are you? What are you doing? The intention uh, and the level of confrontation is dictated by the tone in which you ask it. Give me an example. Of this: What are you doing? Okay, that would be known as accusatory, right? Nobody's ever talked like that, I'm sure. Then there is the: What are you doing? Kind of the the checking in. How are you doing? What's what's happening? And then there is the tone of what are you doing? Like, that's, that's cool. What, what's going on? Why, why are you doing this for me? It's all in the tone. It's all in the way you say it. Or, or if you take a phrase like, I can't believe you did that. As a parent, I know none of you parents, but occasionally I do it, will say something like, I can't believe you did that. Like, how, who were you raised by? Wolves? You weren't raised by me because I, I didn't raise you to think that way. Can't believe you did that. Or, I can't believe you did that. When somebody surprises us and we're happy and we're appreciative. Or, oh, I can't believe you did that. Which is like, uh uh-oh, we're in trouble and the cops are coming kind of thing. Now, one other phrase that completely depends on the tenor of how we say it and the context of how we say it is, get out of the way. Now, you may use that a bit more if you were raised like I was in the Northeast, and you probably, like me, tend to use it most when you're driving. I don't, I don't know a lot about this, but I've heard that sometimes when somebody in front of you is driving too slowly or not driving very well, that some people might say that phrase in a moment of slight frustration. Not, not me, of course, but some people might get out of the way, and we don't usually say it like that. Sometimes we say get out of the way because we're concerned and it's a warning like somebody from the northeast is driving and we want to make sure that we don't get hit by the car. Hey, get out of the way. Or we say it harsh and nasty or we hear it said harsh and nasty like somebody's trying to budge through a crowd and they don't feel like waiting and they think they should be at the front. Hey, get out of the way. Or maybe somebody's got an emergency and they're carrying somebody who's bleeding. Hey, get out of the way. Come on. I got to get through. See, everything is determined by how we say it and by the tone and the attitude. The words are the same, but the way we say it causes inflection and causes intention and and causes a level of confrontation or a level of peace. Now, there's a concept in our text here in Acts chapter 11 that has the same kind of subjectivity, and it came out at the time of the first real tension in Acts between the Jews and the Gentiles. This chapter is another one of those kind of pivot points that we've talked about in our study through Acts where where, uh, something changes, where where the momentum shifts a little bit. And this is the first time, uh, really, that the gospel goes to a group of purely Gentile people. Now, we know that Saul's conversion a few chapters ago represented a shift in the sense that Now this one who has been persecuting the Jews uh, now is is going to be the fulfillment of what Jesus talked about in chapter 1 when he said you're going to go into all the world and preach the gospel. You're going to go to Jerusalem first and Judea which is still in range and Samaria which is still in range but they're your enemies. And then he said you're going to go to the uttermost parts of the earth. Paul represented the one who was going to be the catalyst and the main messenger to the Gentiles. So we know that his conversion represented a a radical movement in that direction, and yet we still have not really seen the gospel go there yet. And as that happens, there's still a a group of old-school Jewish people who, who wanted anyone who was going to be part of the Church of Jesus Christ to still adhere to the qualifications of Judaism. Now, as we said last week, we can't really get a grip on on what a monumental change this was in everybody's thinking. Because the Jews and Gentiles had been so completely distinctive from each other for so long and and by such a wide margin and had such an absolute hatred for each other that to talk about believing the same thing and, and accepting each other and working together as one body was so far beyond the realm of their thinking that it was almost impossible to say that Jew and Gentile would be one, and God says in the Scripture that there would be no distinction, that we would be one body with one Lord, that that the melding of those two cultures and belief systems and lifestyles and nationalities, that, that to put them together was so, so unthinkable. And yet this is what God is doing. But even though Jesus said, this is going to happen, even though the Holy Spirit had opened the doors for it to happen, there were old biases that were not going to die easily. To the extent that even in uh, Acts chapter 15 at the Jerusalem Council, some of the original apostles opposed Paul when he says the gospel is going to the Gentiles. And they have a little little tiff, a little argument. But how many know that when other people's lives start to be changed by the Lord, there's no stopping it. And they could have their biases and they could have their traditions and they could have their backgrounds and they could have their their pride and their nationality, but once God started to move and once Gentiles started to get saved, there was no stopping that. Listen, we don't need church growth formulas. We just need to lead people to Christ and we need to, to stir their passion and feed their spiritual growth and churches will explode. The evidence of that is in the book of Acts, because when the gospel was preached boldly, and people stood for Jesus Christ, and their testimony was strong, what happened? The Spirit moved. And thousands and thousands and thousands of people were saved. And I don't know when we traded our trust in the Spirit's work and our commitment to the calling God gave us for man's formulas, but I'm telling you, we better get back as churches to the book of Acts. Because if we don't, we're just going to keep going down this path of man's formulas and man's ways, and they don't work. Chapter 11 opens with a significant problem. And this problem really could have impeded the progression of ministry. A lot of times what hinders ministry is not the external opposition, but the internal conflict, right? So a lot of times... We're struggling with things in the body rather than things against the body, and that's one of the things that happens here. But people had under, Peter had understood what the Lord wanted and the Lord's direction and the Lord's heart, and he sees that God has given them this fresh calling to, to go and reach the Gentiles for Christ. So let's see what happens. We're going to uh, verses four to sixteen of this chapter are basically a summation of chapter ten. So we're going to glide over those. Let's start in verse 1. We'll read down to verse 3, and then we'll pick it up in verse 17. Thank you for turning in your Bibles. Chapter 11, verse 1. Now, the apostles and brethren who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of the God. When Peter came up to Jerusalem, those who were circumcised took issue with him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Then Peter recounts all that happened in chapter 10. Let's go down to verse 17. Therefore, he says, after giving them all the evidence, we'll talk about it in a minute, of what God had done. Therefore, conclusion, if God gave to them the same gift, talking about the Spirit, as he gave to us, also after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God saying, well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. So then those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen, chapter 7, made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except to the Jews alone. Okay, stop there for a minute. Look at the text, verse 19. They started just talking to the Jews. Then we see in verse 20, but there were some of them, Men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And a large number who believed turned to the Lord. The news about them reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas, son of encouragement, off to Antioch. Then, when he arrived and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and began to encourage them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord, for he was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. What a great sentence to be said about any of us. If you can get to the end of your life and somebody can say what's in verse 24 about you, you have done well. Considerable numbers were brought to the Lord, and Barnabas left for Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for an entire year, they met with the church and taught considerable numbers, and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Now, looking back at verse 1, as Peter came back to Jerusalem after this whole episode in Caesarea with Cornelius, as he came back to Jerusalem, we have to assume that he's excited that he's full of joy over what God has done. Initially, when he saw the dream of the sheep and the animals, and God said, take and eat what's unclean, he was confused and objected, and, and, and he said, I can't do that. That's not in my religion. And God said, no, everything's blown apart. We're not dealing with that anymore. We're going to take the gospel of Gentiles, and you're going to become one. So Peter accepted this. So as he goes back to Jerusalem, he's thrilled. He's excited. And I would guess that his expectation is, that those who love the Lord will be excited too. That they'll be thrilled that God is doing a new work and that the Lord is moving and that the Gentiles are receiving Christ. But that's not what he finds. Very quickly, we see it in verse 2, we read that those who were circumcised took issue with him, notice the word, took issue with him for eating with the Gentiles. Now Luke specifies that that these were the Jews who were not only adhering to the rituals of the law, but they were also segregating themselves. They were also saying, we're different, we're special, we follow these traditions and these rituals religiously, and if you don't, essentially, we see you as inferior. So they're, they're not just zealous for God's commandments, they have an arrogant attitude of superiority, And a uniqueness before God. Now that explains why when Peter comes back and says, oh, you're not going to believe what happened. I had a vision. God's going to the Gentiles. This is great. The Lord's at work. And the gospel's spreading. They say, hold on, time out. Time out, we have a problem with that. But I want you to look very closely at the nature of their complaint in verse 3 because it reveals something to us that's not so holy. Their objection is not that Peter took the gospel to the Gentiles. And their objection is not that the Gentiles had received Christ. Their objection is that Peter had eaten with them. Eating with them by law was considered to be unclean. And we see even after they quiet down about it in verse 18, it didn't eliminate their attitude about it because this group of people... This, this group of circumcised Jews that adhered to the law would be the, the sticking point in Paul's ministry throughout his ministry. They would be the ones who would give him the hardest time. In fact, the whole book of Galatians is written to address this issue. So there's a, there's a continual resentment here. There's, a, there's a, a barrier that's being put up that, that comes out of uh, just a, a pride an exclusive type of thinking that that is unwilling to concede the point of God's greater purpose. Now, we need to understand that from our standpoint, that that is always a danger within the body of Christ. And it plays out in two significant ways. And I want you to listen very carefully here, because these are, are very subtle, and the enemy uses them very tactically and very effectively. There are two ways that this kind of attitude can permeate the body of Christ. The first one is spiritual condescension. Spiritual condescension. That is, that is an attitude of contempt for people that are not on the same spiritual level of, as you are or the same social level as you are. And what spiritual condescension does is it, is it tends uh, to lead to an attitude of coldness and an attitude of resistance to making other people feel accepted in the body of Christ. Whether it's racism, or or sexism, or or denominationalism, or, or economic disparities, or an impatience with people who aren't, progressing as rapidly in their faith as, as you are or are still young in their faith and still falling back into sin and, and wavering and we kind of get frustrated with them and we feel elitist and we, we kind of say, well, look at them. I can't believe they're acting like that or look at where they come from or look at where they went to school or they used to be a Catholic or they used to be what? All these types of little attitudes are are, are elitist and they have a very Damaging effect in churches. And I guarantee you, they are never as subtle or as hidden as we think they are. People can read us, they can read our body language, they can hear the tone of our words, and and they will know when we are acting in a way that is condescending toward them. And listen, this has nothing to do with the ministry that Christ has given to us and his life, and the early church proved how wrong it was. And anytime somebody came with an attitude of spiritual condescension, Acts 11.2, the Lord said, uh-uh, I'm not having that. I'm not having that. That's not right. That's not honoring to me. So we have to guard against this. Second, we need to guard against focusing on what I would call the less essentials. It's hard to imagine that as people are coming to faith in Christ by the thousands, And people who had fought the Jews are now trusting in the Savior who was born as a Jew. And as the Spirit is obviously moving powerfully throughout the world, despite the threats against believers and despite the influence of Rome, that the one aspect of the law that these guys were uptight about was that Peter had had a bagel with some Gentiles. Can you imagine, of all that's happened in the first ten chapters of Acts, of how God has turned the world upside down, the Spirit has come, the gospel's gone out, people have opposed, they've stood up against it, and God has helped them, as Stephen's been martyred, as Paul has been saved, as the gospel spread. that, That these Jews come back and say, well, you had lunch with some Gentiles. What are you doing? Talk about missing the point. Talk about not seeing anything that was going on. Never mind the fact that they would be sharing heaven with them. So to eat with them, would, would, but in their minds, it is so intolerable that they challenge Peter's integrity. Peter comes back, he's so full of joy. Oh, God is working. God is amazing. Oh, the gospel now, it's going to, to the Gentiles. And they're crossing their arms and saying, how dare you have a snack with them? If it hadn't been so sad, I think Peter would have laughed. But I have to imagine in verse 2 that his heart just breaks. They couldn't be filled with joy. They couldn't be filled with anticipation of how God was going to continue to work and how he was going to use them. They had to demand that the Gentiles act like Jews and they were going to stay on their side of the fence until they did it. Isn't it amazing, church, how often we get caught up with the minor aspects of our faith when there is a much greater need to be standing for Christ and to be walking in holiness and to be spurring one another on to love and good works? Listen, when you feel offended, test it to make sure that what's offending you is completely grounded in Scripture. When you feel a battle coming on, be careful about choosing to get involved. Don't pick a fight where it's not critical to the defense of the name of Christ and to the defense of the integrity of a church's ministry. Above all, we have to guard our hearts and minds so our attitude doesn't become arrogant and exclusive and judgmental and looking down the nose saying, you're not doing it like I think it should be done. The grace of God is for all people. And without it, not one of us would be in this room today. So we can't, as a church, be exclusive Because Christ died for all, and the gospel is not exclusive. He says, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Not white, not black, not Asian, not Hispanic, not Southern, not Northern, not Midwestern, not West Coast, not Baptist, not Pentecostal. Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. We don't have a right to ever say, well, we don't accept you. We don't accept you. We, we will not, no, you have no right to be here. See, Peter says, you guys you guys don't get it. See, I have my own reluctance. When, when God showed me this vision, I said, uh-uh. And then he showed it to me again. And I said, uh-uh. And then he showed it to me a third time. You know, I got a thing with threes, but we can talk about that later. But, but, Let me just say, when God said the third time, take and eat, I I had to put down my reluctance, and I had to understand that God was teaching me something and leading me to a new perspective and a new ministry. And let me tell you, there was too much evidence surrounding this for me to look the other way. Because at the same time, I was having a vision, This guy, 14 miles away, had had a vision, and he was Italian, of all things, and and we had the same thing that that melded together, and as I'm having my vision, guys are knocking on my door that he sent many hours before. So it wasn't like this is just a coincidence, and these guys happened to show up. He had the vision, sent the guys, they came to my door as I'm having the vision, and it all matched together. Now... Jews, do you want to argue with the Lord at this point? Do you you want to tell the Lord he doesn't know what he's doing? It doesn't matter how wide the separation is between Jew and Gentile. Because here's what God's doing. He's taking his hands and he's pushing them together. And we don't have a right to say... No, we're Jews. We have the law. We're over here. We don't want them. Hey, that's not an option anymore. God's pulling us together. God is melding us together as one. You know, let me tell you, the Lord can do the same thing in any fractured area of your life. In any area of your life that is broken and separated and and frustrated, if you are willing to put aside your pride and trust in Him, he will bring those fractured pieces together. First and foremost, He can do that with your soul. Every one of us has a heart and a mind that has been corrupted and broken by sin, but through the gift of Jesus Christ, He can make us whole and restore us forever. But it takes admitting our inadequacy and confessing our sins And saying, God, I can't save myself. I have offended you with how I live. And yet, Lord, you are a gracious God. And you sent your son to die for me. And he rose again to defeat sin. And I am yielding my life to you. And I am trusting in you because I have no other hope. I only can trust in you. That is the good news that these Gentiles were trusting in and it is the good news this morning that if you have never done that right now in this room, you can put your faith in Jesus Christ. If you've never done so and you know what He will do? He will save you for all eternity. He will change your life and remove your sin and forgive you and put His Spirit in you and exonerate you of everything so you can live the life of eternal life. You can do that today. You say, well, my life is too broken. I've done too much. I've been too far away from God. It does not matter. God can bring the pieces together. And He can do that in your marriage. Your marriage is broken this morning. It's dry. You're lacking in love. You're being selfish. Somebody's not sacrificing. I don't know. I don't need all the details. I'm telling you this morning, God can put those pieces together. But you have to yield yourself to Him and you have to trust Him to do it. You have a child that's wayward, that's wandered from God. You've had frustration and fracture in the relationship. God can bring them home. God can restore that relationship. You have a work situation that's tense. You've got frustration. You're about to quit. You've had it. God can make that better. God can restore friendship that's been severed. God can do anything to bring people together. And he's always trying to bring things together. So we can sit there and say, "Uh uh-uh, not going to happen. I, 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 I don't want to give in. Well, there's the first problem. Because when we give in, God works. When we say, nope, God says, all right, you deal with the consequences. I gave you a free will. Go ahead. You want to be stubborn and proud and selfish, and you want to take your side, and you want to defend your position, go right ahead. But at some point, I'm going to break you of that, but I'm going to watch you for a while and see if you'll do it yourself. But if I get involved, not going to be pretty. God can heal this morning. Church, hear that this morning. Some of you are hurting. Some of your marriages are struggling. Some of you have relationships with family members that are not working. I'm telling you, submit it to the Lord and yield yourself to him, even if the other person doesn't. Because God can change hearts. He changed the hearts of the Jews to accept the Gentiles. And listen, if he can put two nations that hated each other that much together, he can put your relationship together today. The Lord works in powerful and transformative ways. And even when that's not comfortable for us, even when it defies our expectations, there is no arguing with it because he has a purpose that is greater than our protests. And rather than begrudgingly saying, okay, Lord, you just do it. I'm not happy about it, but you do it. Instead of crossing our arms and being all postured and saying, no. Anybody ever say, no, I do. You know what we should do? We should lift our arms to him and say, Lord, I praise you that you're willing to do this. I praise you that you're willing to get involved and heal this. Lord, heal it. Heal it. And with joy and with passion, I will surrender my attitude and my resistance to you. And Lord, bring those pieces together. And when you do it, I will give all praise to you. Peter says to them, look at the text. I know we've been talking around it. Look at what he says here in verse 17. He says, who was I that I could stand in God's way? In other words, you're not going to find me questioning or challenging the Lord. That's after he questioned and challenged the Lord. And after many times he had said to Jesus, no, Lord, we're not going to do it that way. No, Lord, i got a better idea. Peter now learns. No, I initially objected. But then I thought to myself, how dare I stand in the way of what God's doing? God is at work, and everything he is doing is so wonderful and so beyond me that quickly I realized I can't be a barrier to that. Listen, is that our constant mindset? Are you and I able, are we mature enough to discern the leading of the Lord? And when we do see him at work, even if it challenges what we know and challenges what we want and challenges what's comfortable for us, do we easily yield to him? And do we gladly take part in it? That's a significant question for some of us this morning because right now the Spirit may be convicting you of an attitude or a bias or pride or some kind of custom that you're holding on to. But let me tell you, when the Spirit starts to move, we either need to get on board or we need to complain and resist. But I'm telling you right now, God's only going to bless one of those. When God starts to move, we either need to say, yes, Lord, yes. Yes, yes, I'll do that. Or we need to say, "Uh uh-uh, I'm not doing it. But God will only say, I'm pleased with that about one of those. And it's not hard to guess which one it will be. So when he's at work, don't argue for tradition. Don't let your ego get in the way. Just yield. Peter could have said so many things here. He could have done so many things to be proud. He could have said, I walked with Christ. And I walked on water, and I was there at the empty tomb. And when Jesus set up the church, he established it on my foundation. And I was there at Pentecost, and I received the Spirit. It was was manifest, and we've had major success in ministry, and I've been in jail and released, and God's moved, and I've had this dream, and God confirmed it. Now you guys better respect my authority, because I am Peter. We never see that. He says, listen, guys, the Lord is clearly at work. And we would be crazy to get in the way. The Gentiles are trusting in Christ. We better get out of the way. Because how could we possibly stand in the way of what God's doing? And as he's saying this, look down at verse 19. As he's saying this, the Lord is proving it. Because as all this is happening, the gospel is going to places and to people where it had never gone before. Verse 19 says that as a result of Stephen's persecution and Saul's attacks, and they don't know at this point that he's been saved, that Christians were being scattered. And they went to three different areas. Let me show you a map real quick. I want to show you the areas that they went to. They were going to Phoenicia, which is not on the map here. They were going to Cyprus. The ultimate goal was Antioch, which is right there. You can see that. Jerusalem is down in this area down below. This is Syria right now. So if you drop down to about here, you can see that on the wall. That's where Jerusalem is. This is Antioch. This is Cyprus. So the gospel now is going up to Antioch, way up in Syria, far from Jerusalem, far from where it had been before. And we don't know the timetable of this. Keep the map up if you would. We don't know the timetable of this, but the text suggests in verses 19 to 20 that this could have happened before Saul was even saved. It could have happened before Peter had his vision, that would make it even more remarkable. But whatever the taste, because the text isn't completely clear, the gospel first goes, verse 19, to the Jews only. And then some Mediterranean, that's Cyprus, and some African, Northern African, that's, that's um, Crete, excuse me, I got it reversed, they, they get the idea to take the initiative to begin to speak the gospel to the Gentiles. Initially, the Christians are scattered because of Paul's persecution, and they go up into Syria, and they go up to Antioch, and as they get to Antioch and on the way, they're talking only to Jews. Let's find some Jews. Let's go into the synagogues. Let's talk about Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Let's bring prophecy into it. Let's, let's show how God has worked in bringing us our Savior. But then, a couple guys, or a group of people from from Mediterranean, and from Africa say, why don't we talk to the Gentiles? They have no training. They have no calling from the Lord. They have no commission from the apostles. There's no evidence in the text that the Spirit especially empowered them. And there was absolutely no precedent for them to go to the Gentiles. So it's even more powerful to see how simply the Spirit describes the nature of their ministry In verse 20, look at it. It says, they began speaking to the Greeks, preaching the Lord Jesus Christ. That was the extent of their ministry strategy. Oh, that we would get back to that simplicity. Here was their ministry plan. Here was their five-year goal. Here was the way they were going to approach it. They were going to talk about Jesus. They started to go to Gentile households and Gentile places and they began preaching the Lord Jesus Christ. Their hearts had been changed. They loved Christ. They heard the prompting of the Spirit and they did what any of us can do. They spoke the truth about Jesus even to people that hated them. And all of a sudden, the church expanded into the third largest city in the world and people were trusting in Christ. They could have been discouraged by the persecution that they left behind them. They could have been sad that they had left home and weren't going back and they could have been threatened by the opposition. But as one writer put it, when the coals were scattered from the hearth in Jerusalem, they didn't put the fire out. They only spread it and it kindled a blaze. Oh, Oh, that that would describe us as believers. It's like Jeremiah says, he says, God's words like a burning fire shut up in my bones and I'm weary of holding on to it and I can't endure it. i got to tell people. When we love Christ and His Spirit has possession of us, we want others to know about how great His love is and about how wide His grace is, because conviction demands expression. We're to take a public stand for what we believe and tell others about the hope that's in us because of Jesus Christ. We're to stand for the truth of the Word. We're to talk about the sin of man. We're to talk about the love and mercy of God, faith in Christ alone, and we're to do it with a heart for others. That's all they did. And in case we think the culture is too immoral and the response is going to be too hostile, take a look at what a couple of unnamed foreign Jews with no credentials did in going to their enemies in Antioch and talking about Jesus Christ. Verse 21, The hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. Were they successful? Absolutely. Why? Because the hand of the Lord was with them. And there is no substitute for that. God never leaves us alone. He never hangs us out dry. He never causes our mouth not to be able to speak. Thy word have I hidden my heart, not only that I might not sin against you, but so I can declare your name to others. And When we love the Lord and we're yielded to the Lord, And we take a stand for Him, God will give the words, and we'll start to see people's lives change that we can't imagine. Now here's what's spectacular about this. Look at one more thing and we're going to pray. In verse 21, this is the first time that a purely Gentile audience is receiving Christ. It's not like Pentecost where there were Jews from all over the world, and it's not like Acts chapter 6 where there were Jews who were Hellenists, they were influenced by the Greek culture. This is a totally Gentile crowd in Antioch, and these men go in, and they start to talk about Christ, and people respond, and they trust Christ, and the church starts to expand, and any separation now that had been between Jew and Gentile is impossible. There's no way now to say, well, we're going to stay over here and you stay over there. God has broken down the walls and they need to get out of the way of what God's doing. And this is just the tip of the iceberg. Paul's now going to go on three different journeys around Asia Minor and churches are going to sprout up and people are going to get saved and the gospel is going to expand. So what will it take? What, 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 What will it take in your life and in my life for us to have that kind of impact? Let me give you three thoughts and we're done. These are three thoughts I just want you to, to think and pray about this week. First of all, how how will we how will we do this? This is great that we see Peter and, and these men go. We, it's, it's wonderful, good for them. But how do we do it in our workplace tomorrow? First of all, it takes a willingness to be joyful instead of bitter when God works. It takes a willingness to be joyful instead of bitter When God works, instead of tradition and man's ways and our comfort and and what we want, it should excite us to see the Lord moving in fresh ways and in new directions. And how God uses us is often the difference between the way Peter thought and the way the circumcised Jews thought. The circumcised Jews crossed their arms and said, we don't want it if we don't like it. Peter said, the Lord's good, let's tell other people. So when God starts to move in a fresh direction, don't get bitter and angry and frustrated and irritated and and, and annoyed. Just say, praise the Lord. God's calling me to something that that I didn't count on, but, but here it is. Second of all, it takes an understanding that we're nothing without Christ, but that he wants to save all of us. We are nothing without Christ. Peter says, who am I? You would think he's got pretty decent credentials at this point he says, who who am I? Are you kidding? God's working? I'm not going to stand in the way. Because I remember where I've come from. I remember that I'm nothing without Christ. I remember how often I failed Christ even when I believed him. Listen, when we do that, it keeps us humble. But it also keeps us passionate about talking about Christ. Because all around us, there are people who are saying, I'm worthless. And we say, you are right. And I was too. And I still am. But you know what? Christ is sufficient. You know what? Christ's salvation is wonderful. You don't need to be wonderful. Just let God be wonderful. You just yield yourself to Him. Let Jesus take care of the rest. We don't know who this week is on the cusp of receiving Christ if we will just understand that we're nothing. Third, it takes the discerning vision of what God can do when we're willing to be used in whatever way he chooses. You want to be used like they were in Acts 11? Have a vision for what God can do when you yield to him. The Cypriots, the Cyrenians, they went to Antioch, and all of a sudden they realized the potential of expanding the ministry even though God didn't choose them and say, here's a specific commission, you go up there and you reach the Gentiles. They just went up with the rest of the Jews. But all of a sudden they said, wait a second, why are we only talking to Jewish people? Gentiles need salvation too. When they went, listen now, they had no idea that people would first call themselves Christians at Antioch not in Jerusalem, not in Jericho, not in Galilee, not in Samaria, not in Nazareth, but in Antioch, a Gentile city, the third largest city in the world, that in Antioch, people would first say, we're children of Christ. And we're going to take his name. We're going to call ourselves Christians. We will be the first to identify with Christ in this way. Could they have imagined as they came from Cyprus and Crete, that that they would go up there and that people would say, we're Christians. You and I have no idea what the Lord has in store for us. But we need to be willing and prepared and grateful for whatever opportunity He gives us. Let's close our eyes for a minute and go before the Lord and listen to Him right now. Lord, You have... I pray spoken to each of us this morning and I pray that our hearts have been receptive. Your grace is so unfathomable to us that you would love us and that you would die for us and that you would rise again and save us that you would secure us forever, that you would give us your spirit, that you would bless us with a body of believers to be encouraged by, that you'd give us prayer to go to your throne of grace at any time where you would listen, that you would continue to forgive even after we are saved and continue to sin, that you'd still forgive us. We can't, begin to express our gratitude to you. And Lord, as we gain a a renewed understanding of that, and as it humbles us, I pray that we would also understand that you have given us a great calling, and it will be in times that are unexpected and to people that we would not imagine. But Lord, when we're willing, you will use us. So, Lord, I pray you would break down our biases this morning. I pray you would break down the barriers that we have put up. pray you would just ruin our pride. And, Lord, we pray that you would use us in a powerful way. Father, if there's someone here this morning that has never received you, I pray right now, if they haven't already, that they would turn their heart to you, that they would understand that you are offering forgiveness forever from sin. Lord, I pray that their heart would awaken like those Gentiles in Antioch who heard the gospel and said, that's it, we're going to give our lives to Christ, and we're going to call ourselves Christians. Lord, that today, if there's someone in this room that does not know you, that they would do that right now. And Lord, for those who are fractured, for those who are hurting this morning, Bring an understanding that you heal what is broken. That you unite what is separate. Lord, I pray you would challenge whatever is holding those things apart. Break apart sin, Lord. Remove what has been held on to for far too long. Lord, you're able to do this and you're willing to do this, so we ask you to do it. And Lord, may you bring a great revival in our hearts and a great renewal in our spirit so that we can serve you in powerful ways. We praise you in advance right now for what you're going to do in our midst. We praise you for what you have done. Lord, you have led so faithfully and we honor you this morning that we put ourselves in your hands and ask you to work. And as you do, Lord, may our hearts be yielded and sensitive every single step of the way, because you are great and greatly to be praised. Lord, we thank you this morning. We praise you and we love you. It's in the name of Jesus, our Savior, that we pray. Amen.